0: you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find you get what you need. Oh.
1: Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at PRN.FM. Every Monday at 10 a.m., that's 10 eastern time we're in new york here but you might be anywhere in the world so you've got to check the time and you can catch all of our back shows including this one later today in our archives at visionaries.podbean that's p-o-d-b-e-a-n.com and our special guest today is christopher Vogler. Chris is a Hollywood development executive, best known for his guide for screenwriters, The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structures for Writers. And speaking of mythic, there's a myth about where this book came from in a famous seven-page memo. So, Christopher, welcome.
0: Well, uh, great to be here. Great, because I love talking about these things.
1: Oh, terrific. So tell us, uh, who's Christopher Vogler? What's your background? How did you encounter Joseph Campbell? And how did that seven-page memo come about?
0: Well, I uh, am a farm boy from Missouri, basically. I grew up in the suburbs of St. Louis, but when I was uh, about 10 years old, my dad bought a farm, so we moved out of town. And uh, I had that uh, kind of Mark Twain upbringing with no connection to Hollywood, Um, and uh, except for my great interest in the movies. I I sort of wanted to uh, tear the screen open and crawl in there because it just seemed like uh, uh, the right place for me to be. But I was on a quest, uh, even as a kid, looking for the unwritten rules of screenwriting. I figured there had to be some kind of system or guidebook or uh, uh, philosophy of storytelling uh, that would help me determine how they found these fantastic patterns uh, in the movies that excited me so. And uh, so I was looking for that. And this trail led me through uh, uh, the journalism school, and then uh, I went into the Air Force and made documentaries for them, and eventually landed in uh, graduate school, in, in film school at the uh, University of Southern California.
1: And Such it was a there. famous school! Who did you encounter there? Well,
0: uh, there were some very influential teachers, and uh, I I think uh, there was one in particular, a man named Joseph Andrew Casper, who pointed me in the direction of uh, the hero's journey. But the timing was good for me because a, a student who had been at that school 10 years before, suddenly burst onto the scene with uh, Campbell in his back pocket, and that was George Lucas. At the time I was in film school, Lucas had already advanced to making the first of the Star Wars movies, and I had just found Campbell's patterns in The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and so uh, I went to see the film, uh, Star Wars, and uh, found that uh, he must have read Campbell's book because here are all the things Campbell talks about uh, laid out in sequence and applied to something uh, very commercial. So I was very excited because I felt uh, I had just found Campbell's ideas and could see very clearly that uh, there was a commercial pathway uh, to put these into harness. And then it was endorsed by uh, seeing what uh, what Lucas had done. And it turns out later I found, uh, everyone knows this now, that uh, that Campbell was a big influence on Lucas, and in fact, Lucas has said he would never have done Star Wars if he hadn't had the uh, insights from uh, Campbell's work in The Hero with a Thousand Faces.
1: Interesting. So, uh, we have to thank you for your, for your book. I'm just, I've been involved with Joseph Campbell for decades, attended all of his lectures for 10 years in New York, and uh, I was on the board of the a foundation that maintains his literary estate. But I'm just now re- rereading Here Are the Thousand Faces, and it is tedious. As much as Campbell tried to be a popular writer, he—I uh, <laughs> don't know uh, how well he always succeeds. And so your book is really excellent for clarifying a lot of this material. So how did, how did you encounter Campbell? What did you find in the book? And how were you able to extract out of it this, uh, this clarity?
0: Well, you know, if, if I have a talent, it, it, and it has served me well in the business, in the movie business, it's to uh, look at a big body of material and go over it quickly and pull out of it the salient important points and that's what happened with the hero with a thousand faces i was able to uh... take a dive into that uh... that book which as you say is not easygoing uh... in the movie business we would say it was overproduced (laughs) you know that uh... he lavished a lot of poetry on it and that sometimes gets in the way of his clarity and it's been my job in the movie business to take complex things like a novel or a a complete screenplay and um, cook it down to its essence and and give a a reading on it. And that's where we get to the legend part that you talked about, uh, this famous uh, seven-page memo, which I have mythologized a little bit. But uh, this was my effort while I was working at Disney as a script reader, uh, reading, uh, you know, the scripts that are submitted uh, on a daily basis. Uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of properties come into the studios every year, and somebody's got to read through those and write reports on them. And so that was uh, my main job. But uh, I had learned there a way of uh, giving dense information in a, in a compact way, and, and we call that the studio memos. And so I took Campbell's ideas and translated them into the language of movies. Uh, I made a lot of changes from Campbell's terminology based on what I was seeing in films, because Campbell wasn't thinking about movies when he uh, composed his, uh, his outline. Uh, so I made some amendments uh, to reflect what was in movies, and I put it into this very short memo. And that thing, uh, in the days before computers, went viral. Um, it, it sort of whipped around town very quickly, around Hollywood, uh, and became known as a template uh, or a model of structure which had been missing. That, that we had needed something like that in the movie business uh, that describes not just the plot things that happen, but the psychological turnings within the plot uh, that are based on these observations that Campbell had made. Looking at the myths and fairy tales and folklore and so on of uh, of all the world cultures, and he had extracted this uh, universal pattern, and uh, I simply uh, harnessed it to the the needs of uh, of movie making.
1: Well, so uh, let's take uh, this moment here. We have an hour, but yes. let's get in early. What, what are the basic elements of the pattern of the hero's journey, which is now, in your work, the mythic structure for writers?
0: Yes. Well, I uh, came up with uh, sort of a checklist of mandatory movements, things that—operations, let's say—that have to be done in order to communicate with an audience and to connect up with an audience. And I came up with 12 basic points— uh, which is quite different from Campbell, who has about 32 different things that he describes. But uh, I sort of uh, use these 12 points as uh, grab bags to hold uh, a lot of the ideas. The thing starts, uh, as most stories do, uh, in an ordinary world. So there's an ordinary world, stage one, where the hero uh, is a little bit uncomfortable, but uh, uh, he knows or she knows that world uh, pretty well, but there's signs that change is going to have to so
1: happen. So Luke Skywalker is on the farm.
0: <laughs> that's right, yeah. He's, he's uh, not thrilled about it. Uh, he's kind of chafing uh, to escape that, but uh, that's his world, and that's what he knows. Uh, the, stage two is the call to adventure, and this is a mandatory thing. You really can hardly tell a story without some kind of announcement to the audience and to the hero there's a problem that needs to be solved and you might be the one who has to solve it. So in Star Wars, that's uh the uh appearance of the disappearance of one of the droids. One of the droids goes missing and he has to go look look for it and it leads him to Obi-Wan Kenobi who issues him this call.
1: Uh, well, or or just a little bit earlier, the hologram is Obi-Wan, help me. Right. Obi-Wan, could that be old Ben?
0: <laughs> yes, and 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 that's uh that's the, uh, the, the very literal kind of call, uh, which is issued by a particular archetype uh, called the Herald. Uh, in, in this case, it's uh, the little droid uh, R2-D2 uh, who delivers that message. And uh, that, that kind of uh, electrifies uh, young Luke, and he's excited about uh, going there. But he still has doubts, and that brings us to stage three which is a typical phase of, of refusal of the call. It's very common in stories that there is a moment where the hero receives the call but hesitates or doubts or runs the other way for a, a period of time. Uh, and this is necessary and, and realistic because uh, people do uh, have their, their doubts about any big undertaking. And so it's realistic to acknowledge that. And it also signals the audience that something big and possibly scary uh, is uh, just over the horizon.
1: Also, whether it's in real life or or in literature, sometimes figures refuse the call and and continue to refuse it. And that's a signal that they're going to spend the rest of their lives in a wasteland.
0: Yes, um, it, it, that, that is one of the big warning signs that looms in all of this and can lead to, in drama, what we call tragedy. Uh, this is a situation where somebody uh, maybe gets it for a period of time, they, they they see their way clear to solve their problem, but then they slide back. Or they make some small error at the beginning. This is a motif you find often in the works of Hitchcock, that some small error... Uh, early in the story will accumulate power and eventually uh, lead to the hero's un- undoing. So these are warning signs. Um, so it, it, what stories will sometimes do in order to overcome this fear and get the hero and the story moving again is they'll introduce uh, a character or a kind of energy uh, that is constellated around uh, a mentor figure. Uh, Campbell calls these figures uh, the wise old man or the wise old woman. Uh, this is one place where I changed the language a little bit and just called it a, a mentor. But that's stage four. Uh, once the hero has refused the call, then the hero might be reassured by some wiser, older figure, uh, often uh, who represents uh, a hero who's already been around the circle a few times. And uh, has survived, and you know, it gives us evidence that uh, although it's dangerous, it can be survived. And uh, they may give the hero something um, wisdom, knowledge, training, uh, magical equipment, uh, something like a flying carpet or a magic horse in many stories.
1: Or a lightsaber.
0: <laughs> or a lightsaber, exactly. Yes, and, and that, that gift is very significant uh, in Star Wars. Because it has a heritage and it has a history that that goes back, and handing it over to uh, the young man is a very very significant event. Or just showing him, even showing him the power of the thing, is uh, an electrifying moment for him because it tells him that all these legends and myths he's heard about could be real. They're, you know, he he isn't sure that Jedi Knights even exist, uh, and uh, he, he's he's thrilled to discover that this. Uh, this order of knighthood still exists. He's sort of in the position of uh, Percival or Parsifal in the stories of of King Arthur, someone who wants to believe it, but, you know, the modern world doesn't leave much room for that. But here it is, right in front of him, and there's the mentor encouraging him. So uh, the next step is, uh, now that you're encouraged and equipped... Uh, it's time to do what we call crossing the threshold. This was a very important concept in Campbell's thinking that there are borderlines and thresholds within the frame of the story, and they separate the worlds so the ordinary world the hero knows and the special world where the hero is trying to discover something or uncover something uh, that will be important for his or her future. And so there's a moment, uh, stage five crossing the threshold, uh, which signifies we're taking the plunge now, and we're committing to the adventure and uh, moving along. And so these are the, the scenes uh, where, uh, Luke, well, actually in Star Wars, uh, there is a, a, a drastic thing that happens. His foster parents are killed by the stormtroopers, and uh, this leaves him completely abandoned and with no... Uh, connections uh, or uh, people to to keep him on the planet. So he's ready to undertake the adventure now. So he he doesn't immediately uh, leave his ordinary world. Uh, There's a way station first, uh, which is at stage six, uh, which I call Tests, Allies, and Enemies. And uh, this is where he goes into the cantina. He's still on his home planet, but this cantina is an outpost of the greater outer world this special world that he wishes to explore and it's uh, a place where he uh, gets his bearings he's tested uh... he sees that this is a very different universe from the one he knows uh... it's got its its dangers and uh... he has to figure out who is an ally and who is an enemy in this world so uh... this is a phase i, I see in a lot of movies uh... often It tends to uh, take place in a particular location, which is a bar, a saloon, or a cantina. Something like that seems to be a a natural place for heroes to get their bearings uh, in this uh, new world they're going to explore. So uh, that that takes us through six. Um, And and this is equivalent to what happens when you travel to a new country, uh, there's a period of time when you're adjusting and when you're kind of figuring out the different currency and the language and the different values of this new world, uh, and it can be a kind of uh, un- unsettling time.
1: So we're, we're talking about movies, but we should keep in mind that Campbell uh, presents this as broadly universal. So this is Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, where ordinary, you know— he 's with his mother, and they don 't have food and suddenly uh there's this beanstalk uh, going up into the sky, or the boy with the seven league boots and Campbell also points out its fundamental religions it's the story of Moses Buddha, Christ etc so uh we can uh, very much uh understand these principles through the movies with which we're all familiar but we should also understand them more broadly.
0: Yes, and I would extend that even to uh, many aspects of of just ordinary life. Uh, This pattern just uh, amused me greatly uh, when I first began traveling to teach about my book and, uh, you know, to go to Europe and uh, explore outside of my normal boundaries. Uh, I found that these Hero's Journey points were duplicating themselves in my travels and then in many aspects of of life. And and this is uh, uh, a beautiful part of my life now.
1: Toto, we're not in Missouri anymore. (laughs) Yeah, we're
0: not in Kansas or Missouri anymore. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, the first time I traveled uh, outside of the U.S., To Spain I went through all the things that these heroes go through and I had my stage six uh, where I had to figure out in this new country of Spain uh, who is trustworthy who is not trustworthy I was tested in many ways Uh, everything seemed to be different and the effect it has is to put you back into a child's point of view Uh, you're a child again in in whatever new thing you're undertaking uh, so I, wow. I, I, I love the, uh, uh, the refreshing aspect of that. that, yeah. that it, makes you, it, it makes you young again. To undertake new things can, can uh, give you that youthful uh, perspective. And it might be a little scary, but uh, it, it also refreshes
1: you. Yeah, again. so we've done six. What's number seven?
0: So seven is a, a kind of a grab bag of things that happens while you're on your way to the major event that will take place uh... halfway through the story or three-quarters of the way through the story um, we're talking about uh, in hollywood a three-act structure uh... and we now have entered into the second act and there's a period of time uh... in the second act where you're just getting to know the characters better uh, i call this stage approach because often uh, two people in a relationship or a group of people will uh, go try to go somewhere they're approaching some destination and they're also approaching each other and getting closer and closer deeper and deeper uh... sometimes your uh, first impressions of other people and even your impression of yourself will be reversed or greatly shaken during Mm. this time uh... because in movies, heroes are going through a series of obstacles and challenges at this point in the story. Uh, This is in a two-hour film. This would be about forty minutes or fifty minutes into uh, the story. And so
1: I'm encouraged. I recently checked with my. I just gave a. I teach architectural history. I just gave oh, a lecture. <laughs> Thank you. Wonderful. I just gave a lecture on Greece, and we talked about uh, Homer's Odyssey. And most of my students have read it. So the Odysseus is blown off course and goes to the land of the Lotus Eaters. Yeah. He We're going into another realm here (laughs) It's the psychedelics And then all the adventures The Cyclops, the Sirens So we're now in that realm of all these adventures
0: Yes, and uh, those adventures have a function In the character of, of the hero They're testing the hero, as Odysseus is tested in many ways, You know, will, will he fall into the traps that his crew members fall into? Sometimes they're tempted by things, and he manages to avoid it. He ties himself to the mast so the sirens won't uh, uh, lure him off course. Um, so uh, this is a, a typical pattern in stories that uh, heroes are, are challenged in these various ways. And we, the audience, get to know them better, uh... through those challenges uh... so I, I think the most significant thing to me is the self assessment that uh... you form ideas about yourself in your ordinary life and then when you go to an extraordinary place or set of conditions those assumptions might be challenged and uh... maybe it's a good thing it's a healthy thing to throw out your ideas about what you can or cannot do And uh, a a new circumstance can uh, give you a chance to uh, reset your settings. So the next thing up is, to me, the heart and soul of the whole idea. Uh, And this is a stage, uh, stage eight, that uh, Campbell refers to as the supreme ordeal. And I edited out the word supreme because it misled people to think this was the final climax or the highest point of tension in the story and it's not it's one of the high points uh... but uh... not not the highest one that's reserved for the climax just before the end but somewhere in the middle section or uh, between the middle and three-quarters of the time on screen uh... there is an event that really deeply challenges the hero and uh, his or her idea of themselves Um and and that is is an ordeal which means uh... a life and death moment. And so, in many ways, movies give us this strange treat, which is a taste of death. Uh, It's very odd, in some ways, looking at it, that this is what we're really paying for when we go to the movies. We're paying for a taste of death, Mm. uh, a a chance to experience it vicariously uh, in, in, in the situations and scenes in movies. The hero as in many myths will appear to die from the point of view of the audience they may actually die and be reborn uh they may be swallowed by a whale they may have to make a trip into the underworld to save someone uh they uh, uh they may appear on screen to have fallen into a hole or drowned or something like that and there it is in star wars uh luke skywalker is pulled Inside the Death Star, in the very bottom of the Death Star, this circular object uh, flying in space, he's pulled under water by some monster that lives in that uh, unconscious soup uh, of of the trash masher. And I, for, you know,
1: you- I'm I'm thinking of you know in the right stuff that uh, Chuck Yeager takes a new test plane up. Uh, and it crashes, and the ambulances and fire trucks are going across the desert. And then you see him walking, you know, with all burnt and, you know, he's just he's walking through the smoke. He's fine.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got his helmet under his arm, and this is like a day at the office to him. Right. But uh, to us, from the audience point of view, it looks like no one could have survived that. It would be completely impossible. And yet the hero does. And this is a, a, a wonderful thing. That stories do for us they, uh, they give us this sense of hope that uh, remarkable people or very determined people can go right to the edge of death where no one else would dare to go and sometimes they can make it and, and come back again and so it gives us a little broader idea of our own possibilities and this action of sort of killing the hero or bringing death on stage somehow you don't have to necessarily kill or or uh, thwart the hero gravely it could be that the hero deals death to someone else uh someone near the hero is killed the hero has to dispatch an enemy uh but somehow death is makes its presence known and uh it's a two-step thing uh two-stroke engine kind of uh, idea where there we want to evoke death uh and really shake the audience badly about that but then refresh them with a revival. So there will be a return to life and uh, uh, sometimes a surprising amount of energy that comes with that. Uh, it's a re-energizing of the, of the story and of someone's life. Cool. So we, f- we, we fear uh, life and death situations, but they can revive us if we survive them. You know, everyone has this experience, I think, somewhere where you know, you were nearly sideswiped by a car or, you know, something happened on an airplane flight and it looked bad for a moment. Uh, and, and when you survive something like that or a medical crisis, um, your life has changed and your perceptions change. And uh, I have had that experience uh, where after such an event that made me think I was going to die, uh, my vision is sharper. My perceptions of people are different. Uh, colors are brighter. Uh, it just revives you and and brings uh, more life into the system. And and it may be that we need these things from time to time uh, to uh, enrich our lives with a a little brush with death.
1: So before we go on, and uh, this is such a great conversation, speaking of uh, enriching one's lives, I looked at some of the customer reviews of your book on Amazon. Uh, The only book that helped me get through screenwriting class for my money the most important and clearest book on storytelling a great resource Uh, in many ways this is a guide not just for writing stories but for life so this book has been immensely important to people and clarified so much for them and i uh, recommend to our listeners who are mostly probably online. While you're listening, jump over to Amazon and also jump over to Chris's website. And that is, well, what's your URL?
0: It is uh, www.theridersjourney.com. All one word, no punctuation, Thewritersjourney.com and that'll get you to uh, the uh, original seven-page memo and some articles about films I've worked on uh, as a consultant uh, and, uh, you know, other, other such things.
1: Great. Uh, so So many so, things I want to talk about, but we're just up to number nine, so let's keep going. <laughs> yeah,
0: following through on that, once you have uh, faced death, at, or let's put it this way, once you face your greatest fear, that's really the essence here uh... and for most people that is physical harm or physical death but uh... it might be failure uh... your fear of failure your your fear of missing out on on something important in life your fear of being alone uh... once you have faced those things there is a payback and that's stage nine which i call the reward uh... an alternate name for this is seizing the sword because often uh... in the, the especially north german myths of europe uh, a hero has to do some fantastic deed of going into a cave and fighting a dragon, but there's a reward there. In, in the pile of gold uh, that the dragon was guarding, there's something wonderful, uh, perhaps a magic sword that belonged to the hero's father. That's a common motif. So the hero takes possession of that. And uh, in movies, what that means is that people take possession of a new idea of themselves, uh because they've gone through a dangerous ordeal uh now they they are closer to the gods uh they they are in some sense almost immortal because they faced death and that yet they survived so there's an enlarging of uh the hero's personality at this stage and often um it, 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 there's an odd um statistical tendency for these scenes to take place around fire fire seems to be uh, evoked in movies here it, it's it's a natural unconscious reaction for writers to uh, bring flame onto the screen mm. uh, so there will be fire campfires there people will sit around and talk about what just happened some drastic thing happened in the previous scene and afterwards in the aftermath they put it into perspective and they're usually sitting around a fire or there's uh-huh. candles burning or somebody lights a cigarette uh, but an open flame seems to be an instinctive way of uh, of saying we need to honor what just happened and we need to reflect on it so often there is a long speech in the in the dialogue of the script uh where the hero uh, has a moment of self-realization, and they might say, "You know, back there in the previous scene where uh, the Indians were about to scalp me, or the monster had me in its jaws, uh, I realized something. I realized I've made a mistake all along, and I'm never going to make that mistake again. And then uh, I was uh, liberated, or you know, somebody rescued me, and uh, now I'm I'm able to go on. But I'm different now. I've changed, and that's mm. the the important thing. Is the hero has been through." some kind of a of a transformation and now the question becomes will that stick or will the hero slide back into old lazy behavior or unconscious behavior so that needs to be uh, tested in the in the remaining stages um
1: so uh, number I, ten
0: yeah and then ten is what i call the road back and there could be many names for this uh the second uh, great turning point uh or the threshold crossing but the idea is that uh... the business of the special world has now been completed and it's time for the you, you've got what you came for and it's time to return and go home uh, and so there's a uh, a turning point here where the hero uh... has to uh, pack up uh... gather up what has been learned in the special world and then start moving back to the ordinary world in order to put this uh... into daily practice Uh, And, again, there is a statistical likelihood that the uh, writers instinctively put in a chase scene at this point to indicate there are forces that you stirred up uh, by going into that special world and, you know, uh, digging around in the pile of gold guarded by the dragon. And sometimes the dragon comes back to life, or there's a second dragon that comes after you. Or or the
1: CIA doesn't like what you've been doing.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. That That could be uh that the whatever forces you know let's say even in a a a, a play that deals with generational issues maybe uh, the younger generation stood up to the older generation and uh, for a while that's uh, that's allowed to go on but then the older generation reasserts itself and comes chasing after the younger one and says uh, you know saying uh, you're, you don't be so cocky. You're not so smart, and I still have some power. Sounds
1: like so, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof.
0: Yes, very much so. Those, those kind of plays um, do reflect these patterns just as, uh, as the movies do. So um, uh, there will often be a chase scene at this point, which has a, a f- practical function in storytelling, which is to energize the story. The audience gets tired after going through the evolutions of the hero, uh, almost dying and being reborn again, uh, that is emotionally exhausting. So you need something like a chase to bring some new energy into it, mm. and that that brings us to uh, stage eleven. And now we're in the home stretch. We're almost home. We, it's almost within sight, but there must be one more big test, and this is equivalent to a final exam in a college class we could stay, say that stage eight would be like the midterm exam. Mm. Uh, and if you fail that test, you still have time to make it up. But now at stage 11, we are at the resurrection stage, I call it. And uh, here it's the final exam. And if you fail this one, you've failed. And uh, you'll, you'll, you'll flunk the class or you'll die, or you'll be doomed to repeat everything. Uh, and that's one of the definitions of, uh, of a tragedy. So you uh, need to stage, as a screenwriter, as a storyteller, a, a big climax, uh, which is a showdown, but it has a property of purifying the hero, of putting the hero through one final test that tests on every level of being, on mind, body, emotions, spirituality. All the levels are tested in some big showdown event, uh, or the courtroom battle uh, uh an actual physical war or fight uh you know as in many of our uh, uh science fiction and comic book fantasy stories they all end with some kind of huge uh, uh physical showdown in star wars it's the uh, uh fantastic battle over the death star mm. uh in in which uh, luke is called upon and really severely tested to cast aside all of his scientific instruments and just rely on the Force. So it's a test of what he learned in previous scenes about the Force. Now uh, he's, uh, he's got to put it to work in reality. Use the and Force,
1: Luke. Use, use the, the force. force.
0: That's right. So uh, the hero is, uh, is put through that test and again may appear to die and come back to life again. That's one possible option or they uh... learn their lesson uh... Um, unless we're dealing with tragedy where then they they fail but in most of our happy ending stories hollywood type and fairy tale type stories the hero does vanquish that final foe uh... uh defeat whatever uh... Com- competition there is to gain the uh, princess or to become the new king and uh... uh... their happy days ahead but there's a final piece Stage 12, which is uh, very true to Campbell, I think. Uh, He called it the return with the elixir, and he used that word elixir is an Arabic-derived word that means some kind of magic potion or magic dust that has the property of healing all wounds and bringing life back. It's the holy grail, uh, bringing bringing the force of life back into a, a depleted society. And so the hero's action of facing fear and facing death and bringing something, new knowledge uh, back from the or or some special equipment back from the special world, that test has been passed. But the final, final test is for the hero to share it with everybody else. That's a a very Campbellian uh, attitude, I think.
1: Fantastic. So, listen, um, we're going to. Uh, we've got about 20 minutes, but I'd uh, you know, love to have two or three more hours. But uh, you've uh, put this material together. You've been traveling the world. You've been speaking to screenwriters everywhere, aspiring screenwriters everywhere. What have you encountered? What have you learned? What have what have you awakened in people that you've encountered in, as you present this material?
0: Well, the exciting thing, I think, is that it validates people's instincts, because everyone on some level knows this story very, very well, because we've been programmed. Uh, I think, first of all, it's hardwired into our nervous system as part of our evolution. Uh, I think that uh, this, this was something done hundreds of thousands of years ago as we developed different layers of the brain one of those layers has to do with processing reality as a series of stories and being able to think poetically and metaphorically uh... to imagine uh... scenes and characters that never existed uh... all these are are uh... uniquely human uh... abilities and uh... i i just am delighted to see People nodding and going, "Oh yes, I always suspected that, and I didn't have the words for it. I didn't have the sequence uh, laid out completely." Uh, And I think that was Campbell's contribution. Uh, He's a great one for naming things and uh, for uh, exhausting all the possibilities, you know. And I tried to follow in that uh, in his shadow uh, by being exhaustive, as I could be, about all the different things that might happen in a story. And it's delightful when people recognize that.
1: Great. Yeah. So one of the things that strikes me, <clears throat> when I read uh, Here are the Thousand Faces, I, I to describe it, I use the word, and Campbell's work in general, I use the word a supra-psychology, so that it's a psychology, psychology being... <clears throat> the operating principles of the mind, uh, but it's a psychology not only of the individual but of the society. And then in the latter part of Campbell's book, of the cosmos, the um, cycles of uh, cosmic uh, psychological evolution, however we might put it. And there's been observing observation from uh, people like James Hillman of a failure in our Western psychology. And so Freudian psychology attempted to say, well, you're born neutrally, and of course we get that from uh, uh, Rousseau and et cetera. You're Mm -hmm. born a blank slate, and then your mother, you know, you have toilet training, and your mother disciplines you this way, and your father disciplines you that way. And that then accumulates to form your psychological character. And there's just, however you look at it, that just doesn't make any sense. It's not what happens. It's not what we see. And James Hillman says it's time to rethink and go back and say, you know, maybe he uses the term soul, but maybe we're born with these psychological characteristics, with our character. And I see... Your work as not just a guide for storytelling, but a psychology, a guide for psychology, a guide for understanding human nature, human processes and human behavior.
0: Well, I think we need all the help we can get, you know, and and that is one way I I look at this body of thinking uh, is as, uh, you know, uh, a yeah, kind of a guidebook for living, which should be issued to everyone at birth, you know, like an owner's manual. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it, And and uh, The Hero's Journey, Campbell's Work, My Work, none of that is quite enough on its own. You need many, many sources to get a complete understanding of, uh, of life. But it's a pretty comprehensive one, uh, which can take you a long way. Uh, and, uh, you know, dealing with these questions of uh, the Freudian versus the other points of view, I'm sort of lined up around the idea of, uh, of karma, mm. that uh, we are incarnated uh, and with a package of uh, qualities and characteristics and maybe problems to solve. And, uh, you know, you're put here to uh, get yourself further along uh, with that. And I think a pattern like this can actually be uh, um, quite practically useful, uh, for that, for, for giving you orientation, uh, for telling you where you are in your, uh, the story of your life. Uh, in other words, am I at the beginning of some new cycle? Am I at the end of the cycle? Am I at the middle of the cycle? Uh, it's, it's a useful orientation device, uh, for someone who's a spiritual seeker.
1: Great. So, uh, this is John LaBelle on Visionaries, and our special guest today is Christopher Vogler, author of The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers, and I have right in front of me the third edition. It keeps getting thicker. It's up to 400 pages. So, uh, Chris, uh, we're definitely recommending to all of our listeners. They need to read your book. And, they should be going to your website, so uh, remind us again the URL. And then I want to ask you, what other books or whatever might you recommend to our listeners?
0: Yes, uh, the website is uh, 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 com. all one word, no punctuation, The Writer's journey. And as far as uh, other books, I have a second book, which I co-wrote with a Columbia University professor named David McKenna, who helped me to uh, develop the the ideas in the first book um, with his broad knowledge of popular films. And that book is called uh, the uh, Memo from the Story Department. Memo from the Story Department. So what's in that book? In that, we tried to put down all the other things that were not the hero's journey that went into our thinking as we both uh, had long careers uh, in the movie business advising the studios on what kind of pictures to make and how to make the stories as good as possible uh we used other things and among the things uh i, I we both have a great uh, appreciation for vaudeville and for the uh, sort of training ground that that was for movies and radio and tv everything else uh came out of that background and they had great principles for designing an evening of entertainment. So we extracted, uh, we have a chapter about that. Uh, I looked at uh, another very important source for me in my theory of story was a Russian theorist named Vladimir Mm. Propp, P-R-O-P-P, and he wrote something called The Morphology of the Folktale. And this is a, a wonderful uh, text for anybody who's interested in the shape of stories and what it all means. Right, he
1: found out, like a universal structure in all the folk, in all these folk tales.
0: Yes, he studied a body of about 105 Russian uh, folk tales, and out of this he extracted a pattern very similar to Campbell's. In fact, I think he has the same number of points as Campbell does. In uh, uh, one expression of Campbell's ideas, there are about 32, and I think there are about 32 stages. Uh, or operations that uh, uh, Prop found in these fairy tales. And they have universal applications uh, to all levels of storytelling. So I I love stuff like that. And then uh, I have a chapter you talked about, uh, classical architecture. Uh, I'm very interested in that because I think there are great storytelling principles you can get out of that. Mm -hmm. But I I went to a classic source, a man named Theophrastus, who was a follower of, of uh... aristotle uh... there was a, a a chain of wisdom that went from socrates who taught plato and plato taught aristotle well aristotle taught this man theophrastus and theophrastus wrote a pamphlet about characters two thousand five hundred years ago uh... that is uh, really the first groundwork on uh... character types and he looked at uh... you know the sort of tendencies of human nature in the Athenian marketplace and wrote uh, little uh, humorous, kind of waspish, pointed, sarcastic uh, descriptions of of, uh, characters that he saw, mostly negative behavior like slobs and braggarts and uh, cowards and so forth. But he he opened the door to understanding uh, character and and how there are types. There are uh, recurring types, and eventually that uh, had an influence on me in in uh, looking at uh, the common operations that characters do in in movies, and uh, I, I took that te- that term from Jungian psychology, archetypes, to describe the sort of standard cast of characters that you need to tell a story. But uh, prop was a big a big influence there, and I would also point people to. Uh something that's very much in use at Disney in animation where I worked for much of my career, um, which is Bruno Bettelheim and his book Uses of Enchantment. Uh this is a, a wonderful text about fairy tales and how they are living things that still speak to us at every age, uh not just for kids, and uh it was a, a, a powerful tool in the hands of the animators at Disney.
1: Uh. Fantastic. Well, you yeah, know, yeah, so many things spin through my mind. I'm thinking of the movie Wanted with James McAvoy and Angelina Jolie and how it uses these themes, but it, it's got them crowded into one movie, you know, that, that George gave himself uh, three movies initially to fully unfold it. So we don't even hear, am I right in recalling that we... In the first movie, we do not discover that um, Darth Vader is uh, Luke's father.
0: That's that's correct. That was held back and was played as a surprise. Um, I imagine, uh, I, I haven't talked to George Lucas about this, but uh, uh, I would imagine that uh, it came as a surprise to Lucas as he hmm. was uh, devising the thing. Um, I, I, I'm very interested in how someone... Um it comes to an understanding of a big story like that. Um, I, there, there must have been some mountaintop experience uh, such as uh, Campbell had. I, I think Campbell had uh, a, a unifying vision one day where he had loaded himself up with uh, the patterns of the stories. And then there must have been one day when it crystallized for him mm. when, when when he just went, Aha' I think I see it, and I believe that happened to Lucas, where uh, he took Campbell's ideas and many other things he'd been studying in anthropology classes and uh, and uh, film classes. Uh, but he he took it all in, and it crystallized and came out as Star Wars. And I think he saw it as as Wagner did. Uh, he saw the whole Ring cycle one day, and uh, you know, sort of spent the rest of his career unfolding that, un- unwrapping that gift from the gods.
1: Yeah, so uh, you wonder when you see these uh, multiple movie things, and you know, how did they prepare for that in movie one? You know, yes. they, they didn't know it was five years later, ten years later, they'd make movie three. Uh, I, you know, I wonder if George read Campbell's first book. He did an introduction to Maud Oaks' uh a description of a Navajo myth where the two came to the father, and the two are twins. So, you know, we discover that Luke and uh, Princess Leia are twins and that Darth Vader is the father. So, you know, the way these things uh, unfold, you wonder how much they— Uh, Envisioned the whole thing at the beginning and how much they had to scamper to try to get everything to fit together as they made the subsequent movies.
0: Well, it's probably a combination of the two, but I I just get a a flash here as we're talking that uh, it's very likely that whatever sort of uh, blinding vision of, uh, of a unified thing an artist might have the artist may look down and realize, oh, I'm standing on the bones of all the other artists who stood on this spot and had the same uh, blinding flash of, of vision. You you, you know, I, I as a kid, uh, studied the Norse myths, and I had such a vision one day, and I thought, oh, gee, I see the whole thing, and then I studied a little bit about Wagner and the Ring Cycle and realized, oh, he already did that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Somebody's already done exactly what I had envisioned. And then you see
1: uh, it unfold again in Lord of the Rings. (laughs) And
0: then there it is again, uh, wonderfully uh, mutated and and put through a lot of uh, different filters, but essentially the same mythic material about a ring and uh, the, the, the dangers of the ring uh, being a, a very attractive, but a, a, a powerful and uh, sometimes soul-corrupting
1: and a, and a real suspicion of modern technology. You know, the, um, there is that thread in both Wagner and Lord of the Rings as well.
0: Yes, and it's, uh, it's part of the discourse within Star Wars. Is How shall we continue to be human as more and more... Uh, we are asked to surrender parts of ourselves to the machines, uh, to to, to smear the borderline between what is human and what is a machine. And in our lifetimes, we have seen that uh, go from the the level of everybody on Earth learned how to drive a car. Mm. uh, And and, uh, it's uh, really quite bizarre that as a species, we were able to do that. Um, but that 's only the beginning, and there are all these new things coming which uh, we are uh, right to be fearful and concerned about at the same time that we 're hopeful what it can bring for us. so I think all those old stories are are uh, uh, warning us and guiding us about uh, how to how to take on the new uh, the new knowledge
1: yeah, so uh, what other material as we wrap up here? might you recommend for our young, aspiring, some might be aspiring. Well, uh, (coughs) New York's not quite as bad as California, but most people, uh, myself included, have uh, some kind of incipient screenplay on their laptop somewhere, buried in some folder. So what else should uh, we be reading and paying attention to?
0: Well, I would... uh recommend uh... there's a series of books written by the playwright david mamet who's also a good screenwriter oh, yeah. uh... and uh, he has a, a book called writing in restaurants because he does uh, some of his best writing when he's sitting alone in restaurants but it's a series of essays and it has to do with, uh... the craft of writing and and particularly he's interested in a kind of integrity about your writing a kind of truth-telling uh, that, that it's an absolute obligation of the artist to uh, tell the truth of his or her times and uh, to not uh, uh, fudge on uh, moral uh, issues and, and to, to be very clear about those things and uh, not uh, slide back into commercial formulas but uh, to be really honest great I, I appreciate that well you uh, can't you
1: can't end on a better note than to be honest anything uh th- this is john labelle and visionaries our guest has been christopher vogler author of the writer's journey and uh let's urge our readers to go to thewritersjourney.com and anything else you want to say to wrap up
0: well just that uh, i think everybody's on a journey and uh, they should uh, in, enjoy the ride uh, of that journey although it can be scary at times uh, you know there's a certain hope that's embedded in all of these ideas that uh, if we if we go at it uh, with uh, an open mind the sort of the, uh, the, the 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 childish uh, appreciation of uh, the wonders of story, uh, things will work out all right. So uh, that's that's sort of an implied promise in all of this. And uh, it's worked out that way for me, and I hope so for uh, all my listeners here.
1: Terrific. Well, thank you very much. And uh, this is John LaBelle on Visionaries. Catch us every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And if you've been turned on by the show and you've got friends to tell about it, they will find it at visionaries.podbean that's p-o-d-b-e-a-n and it will be online uh, perhaps later today if not first thing tomorrow and thank you for joining us.
0: My pleasure. Thank you John.